If you haven't already done so, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Focus this morning is going to be uh, on uh, Acts chapter 8 through uh, verse 25, the, the verses that Sam read for us, the, the verses that recount for us Philip's ministry uh, in Samaria. Now you'll remember last Sunday that we, we noticed that uh, chapter 8 begins with uh, Saul approving of an execution, the execution of, of Stephen. Stephen, who had been arrested for preaching the apostolic gospel, had been brought to trial before the, the council where uh, they accused him of blaspheming against God and against Moses, against the temple and against the law. Uh, and Stephen, in response to those charges, said, no, it's, it's not me who has blasphemed, it's actually you. You are the ones who have spoken against the temple, and you are the ones who have spoken against the law by rejecting Jesus, the one who came in fulfillment of the temple and the law. And of course, as we saw at the end of, of chapter 7, when uh, the leaders heard these things, they were enraged and they, they dragged Stephen outside and they, they put him to death. And that was the, the moment where the, the persecution or the opposition against the leaders of the church in Jerusalem reached its climax. It really began to, to overflow so that it was now directed not just against the leaders, but against the church in general. We, we read that Saul was ravaging not just the leaders, but the church. He was actually going house to house and dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. And it is this persecution that leads to the scattering of the church, the scattering of all except the apostles throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And as I said last Sunday, the, the first Christians who, who fled from that persecution, the first Christians who, who left Jerusalem to, to get away from men like Saul who were ravaging the church, they were not wrong to flee the persecution. We don't need to endure persecution unless we need to. There, there's no virtue in enduring persecution needlessly or, or unnecessarily. But it is worth noting that, that God used this persecution that they were fleeing, that he, he used this scattering to, to prompt the first Christians to, to take the gospel for the first time beyond the borders of Jerusalem. As Sam said to the kids, remember it was Jesus who said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. From the beginning of the book of Acts, it has been clear that, that the work that Jesus is doing is to establish his church not only in Jerusalem, not only amongst the Jews, but he is going to establish his church even to the ends of the earth amongst all people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But to this point in the story, to this, this point in the book of Acts, uh, the, the church had not really left Jerusalem. Now some see that as disobedience. 
They see the, the apostles and the other leaders in the church as, as living in disobedience, as, as something like the people at the Tower of Babel. Remember the, the people there that, that refused to go out and to, to fill the earth, but rather they decided they were going to stick together and they were going to make a ma- name for themselves by build, building a tower to the heavens. They were refusing to disperse, and so God had to scatter them. Some see that in the apostles. They, they think that them staying in Jerusalem has, is, was an act of disobedience. Others see it as wisdom. They see the apostles laying a strong foundation in Jerusalem, building the, the church uh, up strongly so that it will be prepared to support the, the ministry that is going to go eventually to the ends of the earth. I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, the truth is probably lies somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I tend probably closer to the second view, but but nevertheless, I don't think it was pure wisdom. But I don't think it was disobedience either. Nothing in the text to this point suggests that the apostles were resisting or neglecting their call. Uh, Quite the contrary. To to this point, the apostles, empowered by the Spirit and, and supported by the prayers of the church, they have been bold in their proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. Even after being miraculously delivered from prison, they they went immediately back into the temple courts to proclaim the gospel. They were were clear when they stood before those with authority over them. They were were clear saying we must obey God rather than men. Nothing in the text to this point suggests that they were neglecting their duty. But on the contrary, they they were doing everything that they had been called to do, even in the face of ever growing opposition. And so I don't think it's fair to say that the apostles' failure, even if we should use that word, that their, that their failure to leave Jerusalem up to this point was somehow disobedience. However, it may have been the result of, of misunderstanding. I don't think they had yet fully comprehended what, what Paul will later call the mystery of the gospel, which is the full inclusion of the Gentiles. I don't think they had yet fully understood. In fact, we'll, we'll see this as the story continues. We'll, we'll see this when, when Peter is called to go to a Gentile named Cornelius. They, they, they didn't yet fully get the gospel. They didn't yet fully understand that, that God was going to bring in all the nations, the people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. They, they didn't understand that the Gentiles were going to be grafted into Abraham's family. And so it was misunderstanding, I think, more than anything that had kept them in Jerusalem to this point. And that is why God uses this persecution to move things along. He uses this persecution to to push them into the next phase of their ministry, into taking the gospel beyond Jerusalem, here into Samaria. But we must be careful not to misunderstand what this means. God uses this persecution. He he uses this persecution to accomplish his own good purposes, but that does not mean that the persecution in itself is a good thing. God uses it, but that doesn't make it good. God, being God, is able to, to use evil to accomplish his good Purposes, And we must be clear in our own thinking that this persecution, Saul ravaging the church, 
That even though God is going to use it for good, the persecution itself is not good. The, the persecution itself is evil. It is wrong. It is wicked that Saul and the other Jewish leaders are ravaging the church. But God is able to use this wickedness. He, he is able to use this evil to accomplish His good purposes for the glory of His name and the good of His people here and now. And we say that so often that, that we, we sometimes can, can miss the, the wonder of it. This is true evil. This is, this is true wickedness. And yet God is going to use it to accomplish true good. That is what it means for God to be God. That is what it means for God to be the Almighty. That He is able to take our sins and the sins of our neighbors and He is able to work them together for the good of those who love Him. And I want to suggest to you that that, that ought to give us both tremendous comfort and hope this morning. To see God using the evil of the Jewish leaders, the, the, the wickedness of their hearts against his church, to see him using that for the good of his church ought to give us first a, a tremendous amount of comfort. It, it ought to comfort us because it reminds us that God sees the evil of our persecution. He, he knows what is happening to us. He is, he is using it for our good, but, but He is not blind to the reality that it is evil. And what does that mean? It means that He will not let it stand forever. God is using the evil, but He knows that it is evil. And therefore, while he will use it in the present, he will not allow it to go unpunished forever. We see this in the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk complains about the sins of, of his own people. And, and he complains to God, how, how long are you going to overlook the, the sins of your people? And God says, don't worry, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they are going to punish my people for their sins. And now Habakkuk is really confused. He says, how can you use a people more wicked than your people to punish them for their, for their sins? And God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians. I'm going to use the wickedness of the Babylonians. I'm going to use the evil of the Babylonians to accomplish my purposes, to refine my people. He said, and yet I will also hold the Babylonians accountable for the sins that they are committing. And that is a reminder to us that God will not allow evil to stand forever. He uses it for his purpose, but he still sees it as evil, and therefore he will one day put an end to it. The church today continues to, to face evil around the world and, and here in the United States. We, we don't face the same kind of evils here that, that others have faced in other times or, or even today face in other places, but yet nevertheless we do face opposition. We face those who, who, who seek the harm of the church. And we can recognize that they cannot undo God's good purposes for his church. God will still work good for his people. But that doesn't mean that he's just going to ignore the, the, the evil which is perpetrated against his church. He will one day bring it to an end. He will not let it stand forever. But there's more than just that. More than just the idea that God recognizes the evil of what is being done. Yes, that, that gives us a, a, a comfort to know that, that God will not let it stand forever. But there is also a hope here. 
Because God is going to not just bring that, that trouble to an end one day, he is going to use it in the present to bring glory to his name and good to his people. Not, not only will our suffering one day end, but even now it will be used to accomplish his good purposes. We, we don't always see it. We don't always know exactly what God is doing. But we can say with bold confidence that our suffering is not in vain. It's not just something we have to endure until the day when God will bring it to an end. God is actually going to use it to accomplish his good purposes. And that got to give us great hope. And that's the point that, that Luke wants us to see as he begins to recount the story of Philip's ministry in Samaria. The point is that God is still with his church. Jesus is still working. He is, he is keeping his, his promises. The, the, the persecution is, is growing. It is intensifying against the church. And yet God, through, through Christ, is still accomplishing his good purposes for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That's exactly what we're going to see here in the story of Philip, which we will be looking at for the next several weeks. It takes up most of chapter 8. Philip's ministry in, in Samaria and even beyond. Because here we see that, yes, Acts is truly the story of what Jesus is continuing to do. He is still at work. He is still at work building his church blessing his people. We, we see this in the overview that, uh, Phil, uh, that Luke gives us of, of Philip's ministry there in verses 5 through 8. Look again at those verses. Here we have just a, a brief overview, a, a brief introduction to, to Philip's ministry. He will, he will kind of focus in on one man beginning in verse 9, this, this man Simon the magician. And looking at the clock, we're probably not going to get to him this morning, but that's okay. Uh, we're we're going to look at this overview first. Because here in this overview, he, he gives us a picture of Philip's ministry in Samaria. And that's the, the first thing that we just need to take notice of. The first thing that we need to take notice of is that Philip's ministry is in Samaria. I already said that, that God used this persecution to, to drive the Christians out beyond the borders of Jerusalem into Samaria. And, and we'll see even from there to the ends of the earth. But we're told that Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, we're not exactly sure what's meant by the city of Samaria. We're not, we're not sure exactly what city uh, Luke has in mind here. But the, but the point is, whatever city it was, it was a city in Samaria. And you know, even as Sam was, was telling to the children, the Jews and the, the Samaritans didn't like each other all that much. They, they looked down on each other. They, they, they regarded the other with contempt. The Samaritans were uh, considered uh, half-breeds by the Jews because they were the descendants of, of, of those Jews who had been left in the northern part of the kingdom when Assyria came in and then who had intermarried with all kinds of other nations. And so their religion, from the, from the Jewish perspective, was, was a, a syncretism, a, a, a synthesis of the already polluted religion of the northern kingdom with all of the other nations that the Assyrians had brought in to, to populate the land. 
And so it was, it was uh, uh, a twice-polluted uh, strain of their uh, Judaism, polluted really beyond recognition as far as the Jews were concerned. And of course, because the Jews showed the Samaritans such contempt, the, the, the Samaritans often returned the favor. They saw the, the Jews as, as, a, as, a, as a, a deeply wicked people themselves. And so we have the, the Jews and the Samaritans who, 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 for the most part, simply avoid one another because they, they cannot stand one another. You may remember that when Jesus was, was traveling from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south, it was actually a surprise that he would pass through Samaria because even though that was the most direct route, most Jews would go around. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even want to set foot in Samaria. And yet Jesus passed through and, and, and ministered there. Now we see his, his people beginning to minister there. And not only is he ministering in Samaria, but notice his ministry. We are told that he proclaimed to them the Christ. Again, that's, that's shorthand that we are familiar with. It's a, it's a phrase that, that we are used to hearing. But, but think about the significance of that. He is proclaiming to the Samaritans the Christ. And we begin to hear the significance of that when we remember that, that as you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. Christ is the, the Greek for, for Messiah, the anointed one. He is proclaiming Jesus as the anointed one. He is proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament. Now, why should the Samaritans care that God is keeping his promises to Abraham's children? Why should they care that God is, is keeping his, his promises to the, the Jews? They should care because those promises are for them as well. That's what Philip is proclaiming. Philip is proclaiming that all of the, the promises that belong to Abraham's children are now available to the Samaritans too. Those promises are not exclusively for the Jews, but they are for all people, even the Samaritans. And again, that has profound implications for the way that we think about the gospel today. People are always, uh, pastors today are always uh, trying to, to think about who is the, who's the closest parallel to the Samaritans in our day and age. And, and there are any number of ways that you might answer that question. Any number of groups uh, that are uh, at one another's throat, that, that hold one another in contempt. But when you think about the history of the Samaritans and you, you think about their relationship to the, the Jews, it seems that, that maybe the, the group that is most like the Samaritans in our day and age are, are those who claim to be Christian and yet have compromised on some key tenet of, of biblical faith or of, or of biblical practice. We think first, I think, of, of those who have compromised on sexuality. There are many Christians today who no longer hold to a, a biblical sexual ethic. They, they have, they have uh, bowed to the world's agenda. They have, they have affirmed things that the Bible refers to as, as sinful. They, they have praised things that the Bible said are, are shameful and lead to death. And yet they still call themselves Christians. They, they, they still claim to be followers of the one true God. 
That's something like the Samaritans, is it not? We see them as those who have some history with true faith and yet have, have compromised it to the point where it's, it's no longer even recognizable. Of course, we could say the same thing about, about those who we regard as on the, the wrong side of the social justice debate. Now, where you stand depends on which side you see as the, the wrong side, but nevertheless, in our day and age, they, there are those who, who look uh, to the right or those who look to, to the left and say, you are on the wrong side. You have compromised the gospel uh, by your, your teaching about, about social justice and, and, and uh, justice in this world. And again, we, we see them as having compromised the gospel. It's how the Jews saw the Samaritans. They, they thought that they had compromised the truth. And so we need to recognize that, that when we see those people who have, who have compromised, when we see those, those people who we regard as, as on the wrong side of, of, of key debates, of, of central tenets of the faith, of, of, of central practices of, the, of, of following Christ, we need to recognize that the gospel is for them too. That they are not to be written off they are not to be forgotten, but they are to be engaged. We are to take to them the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And of course, I think the, the point applies beyond just those who we see as, as compromised. It applies to anyone and, and everyone who we are tempted to regard as hopelessly lost. There are some who make no claims whatsoever to Christianity and yet stand uh, vigorously opposed to the faith and, and vigorously opposed to the Christian life. And there again, we, we must say that, that we cannot regard them as beyond the hope of the gospel. We are to proclaim to them the good news of the kingdom and of the name of Jesus Christ. Who is that for you? Who is it that you are tempted to think of as beyond the hope of the gospel? Who is it that, that you see as, as, as needing to be simply opposed rather than evangelized? We probably wouldn't say it out loud in exactly that way. But, but you know your, your thought. Your, your thought when you think of them is, is not how to, how to communicate with them the gospel, how to share with them the good news of, of Jesus Christ, but rather how to stop them. How to oppose them. How to defeat them. Well, whoever it is that we regard as Samaritans, we must see that the gospel is for them because it was also for us. And who were we? Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 5, does he not? We were sinners. We were enemies of God. When God loved us and demonstrated his love for us in this, that he gave his son, Jesus Christ. That we who were, he says in Colossians, hostile in mind towards him. That we might be reconciled. That we might be qualified for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. That we might be forgiven and adopted into the very family of God. The gospel was for us when we were enemies, when we were hostile. And therefore, the gospel is for all those who we are tempted to regard as enemies today. 
Paul or Philip takes the gospel into Samaria. And we must, again, follow his example. But, but there's something else we need to see here. Not only does, does Philip take the gospel into Samaria, but his ministry, as he takes the gospel into Samaria, is validated by signs, just as Stephen's ministry in Jerusalem had been. Again, notice what we're told. He says, And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Casting out unclean spirits, healing those who were lame. These are the signs that, that Philip was doing in Samaria. And, and that tells us two things about Philip's ministry. First, it, it tells us that this ministry is approved by God. God is working through Philip. But again, it, it also makes that point that we have seen numerous times over the course of the last several months. We, we've seen it in our study of Acts up to this point. We, we saw it in our Sunday school class. But it, it, it needs to be said again that, that God validates those who he sends out as ministers of his word. He, he validates the apostles who, who speak with him. And now here in this first generation, he is validating those who are not apostles themselves, but who are ministers of the apostolic gospel. He does not leave people to guess who speaks for him. He does not leave people to, to guess who preaches the, the true gospel of God. He validates their ministry. And again, I, I don't have time to unpack all of that this morning, but it, but it is a, a remarkable truth that we need to see. This is how the Samaritans knew that the gospel that Philip was proclaiming was a true gospel. Because it had been validated by these signs. They saw God's power at work through him. And therefore they knew that he was speaking to them the truth of God. They were able to pay attention to him. They were able to hear what he had to say. And they were able to receive his gospel with great joy. That's really the third thing that we need to, to see here this morning. That the result of Philip's ministry as he, as he takes the gospel into Samaria, a, a gospel that is validated by the very power of God, as he takes this gospel into Samaria, and as they, as they pay attention to it, and as they begin to believe it, and as they begin to, to receive it, we are told that there was much joy in that city. And again, I think this is a point that, that we need we need to hear and we need to, to, to meditate upon in our day. You know, we, we may think, well, of course the gospel produces joy. Those who were under curse now have, have the blessing of, of God. Those who were condemned are, are now forgiven. But I think we sometimes say things, those things far too quickly. We, we say those things with, with far too little thought. We need to understand that the gospel is a gospel that, is of, that brings joy to all people, to those who believe it. And we, we have a clue as to why this gospel brings joy in verse 12. Look again how, how Luke summarizes this gospel that, that Philip is preaching. We are told that Philip was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. He was preaching the good news about the kingdom and the name. And it is that combination of the good news of the kingdom and the name that brings great joy to the people in Samaria. The gospel leads to joy first because it is the gospel of the, the kingdom. 
Think about what the kingdom is. The, the, the kingdom is, is that domain where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray, right? Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where God's will is done, there his kingdom is. And that's good because God's will is good. God's will is, is good, perfect, and, and pleasing. God's will is as things should be, as he, as he created them to be. It is when we walk in accord with God's will that we, that we flourish, that we experience life as it is supposed to be. And the good news of the kingdom is that God, through his son Jesus Christ, is establishing his kingdom on earth. Yet again, he is establishing his, his kingdom on earth so that a, the goodness of his original creation uh, will be restored. But of course, there's more to the gospel than just the, the, the coming of the kingdom. Because while it is good that creation is going to be restored and that, that evil is going to be done away with, that is not immediately good news for any of us. That's not immediately good news for any of us because when God wipes away the plague of sin, when God undoes the works of the devil, when he, he destroys all that is contrary to his will, that includes us. We, as I said earlier, were his enemies. We were hostile in mind towards him. We were the workers of iniquity. And therefore, the good news of the kingdom is not good news in and of itself. It was not good news for, for Prince John that Richard had returned. If you're an enemy of the king, the coming of the king is not to be celebrated. And that is why the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. For it is Jesus through his self-sacrifice, through his life, his, his death, his, his resurrection, his ascension. It is God, Christ through his finished work that qualifies us for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him the, the record of debt that stood against us is nailed to the cross, not to be counted against us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. And having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God and have been adopted into his family and as his children are heirs of his kingdom. That is the wonder of this gospel. You see, it's not just that we've been forgiven with no inheritance. But it's not simply that the kingdom is coming with no forgiveness. We, we need both and the gospel is both. Jesus is the king who is establishing his kingdom on earth, and he is the savior who qualifies us for an inheritance in that. All who receive and rest upon him, all who believe in him, will not perish, but will have eternal life with him in his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. World without end. That is the wonder of the gospel that, that Philip was preaching in Samaria. And that is the gospel that brought joy. And it's the gospel that ought to bring joy to us even this morning. We ought to be people of joy. Yes, as we've sung this morning, we will pass through the fires. The, the floods will rise. 
But we can have inexpressible joy even in the midst of our groaning. Because we are citizens of the kingdom. We have a king who already sits upon the throne. And we have a king who will not fail to take us all the way home. It's the gospel that Philip was proclaiming in Samaria. That was the gospel for those who the Jews regarded as enemies, as too far gone. It was for them, and it is for us this morning. If you are here this morning, this gospel is for you. And if you believed it uh, before you can even remember, believe it again this morning. Return to what you believe this morning. Rest in it this morning. And allow it to comfort and encourage you as, as you prepare to face life in this world a little longer. As you prepare to run the race that he has marked out for you. And if you have never known the hope of this gospel, hear it this morning and believe it for the first time. You are not too far gone. I don't know your story. I don't know all the details, but this gospel is for you. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. All who call upon his name will be saved. None will be turned away. Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans because that truth was beginning to open up in his mind. And may we see it clearly this morning as well. This gospel is for all who will believe. If you will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior, then you will have an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading in the age to come. That is what is promised to all who will believe. And because that promise is beyond our imagination, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear this gospel that Philip preached in Samaria. Let us believe it, Father. Let us love it. And let it bring us great joy to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.